Cool. Thanks. If I would have known you were going to say I was cool, I would have been here 10 minutes ago. Um, so thanks, Bridget. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks, Mark, for the invite. Um, my name is Gary, and I'm a person in long-term sobriety. Um, hi to some of my friends out there. I see Dave, and I see uh, who else is out there? I see Bob's out there and a few other folks I know from um, Writers for Recovery. Anyway, I've never been in an, uh, done an AA meeting. I've never been a speaker at an AA meeting. I think I have gone to two. Um, this one, one other time, I think when Nellie spoke and another time when friends of mine spoke. Um, so it just seems a little bit weird, but I checked it out with Mark and he said, um, you know, don't worry about it. You can talk about politics and sex and religion and sobriety and food and whatever you want and, and take as long as you want. So I would like to welcome all of you to my four hour lecture. It's called having sex with food while drinking. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, anyhow, um, I try to think of what I wanted to tell you about myself. And I think a really important thing is that um, I grew up in a kind of what I think of as a special place. Um, it was a little town in, in um, the Northeast of the United States in a state called Pennsylvania, um, a place called Eldred, Pennsylvania. And it was a tiny town of about 800 people. Um, and it was really idyllic place in a lot of ways. You know, it was very rural and beautiful and, all the, you know, moms and dads had good jobs at the factories, you know, and all the kids would run around and, and you know, play together all day and everything. But, you know, so in, in a lot of ways, it was like something you'd see out of a movie or something kind of paradise for kids. But it was also um, a place where drinking was a huge um, part of life, where it got modeled for us that way that that's just what you did. You know, you went to a picnic or a party or whatever, and there was a keg of beer and, and every, all the, all the grownups just, you know, got drunk and had a good old time. Um, <clears throat> the first time I remember drinking at a bar was um, when I was five years old. Now I was drinking orange soda, mind you. Um, but I was sitting next to my dad and my dad would take me um, to the bar, you know, my mom worked on weekends and she would leave early in the morning. And then, um, oh, about 11 o'clock, my dad would start getting antsy and he'd say, let's take a ride in the car. And, um, we would go to this place called the Betty blue it was called and And it was called that there was a refinery across the road called, um, the Eldred refinery and they made Betty blue gasoline. And so the bar was, it was a bar where the workers would go when they were off shift, you know, to have a drink. And I would go there with my dad and I'd sit at the bar and drink my orange soda. And um, I learned I could go under the bar and like harvest the bubble gum, you know, and like use it again. Um, and uh, I, I finally, I, got, I think I got caught at that. Um, and I was told that wasn't cool. Um, and then there was a little room, there was like a special dining room called the blue room where I would just go in and it would be empty and everything was blue, all the tablecloths and everything. And while my dad drank, I would just go in and, you know, crawl under the table and just sit there, you know, and, and I don't know, imagine stuff and, and, you know, have little imaginary adventures. And then when my dad got tired of drinking, sometimes we'd go across the street to the American Legion, um, and drink over there with all the veterans, um, and that was a pretty sad place, really. There were 
all these old World War II guys who just sat at the bar and stared at the TV and drank and drank and drank. Um, and so um, at a certain point, despite growing up in this kind of, um, you know, really placid environment, except for, you know, that, that part of it, which I didn't really know, you know, I, I thought I was fine, but I discovered that I was a cowbird. Um, and I, I wanted to tell you guys about cowbirds um, because I found myself to be one. And I went on the internet and I got a little bit of information because, you know, it's on the internet. I wanted to, you know, share it with you because if it's on the internet, you know, it's true. And this is what it says about cowbirds. I don't know what you know, if any of you guys are bird people, but they're just a small little brown bird, but they have a unique thing. Cowbirds are brood parasites, meaning that rather than raise their young themselves, they ditch their eggs and other species nest and allow these forced foster parents to do the tough work of chick rearing. Baby cowbirds grow up with families that neither look nor act anything like them, sometimes in habitats in which cowbirds don't even really live. Um, and I feel like that really was my story that I was born and I grew up in a family that was nothing like me, you know? Um, my parents were very uh, conservative. My parents were very straight, you know, straight line people. And everybody kind of thought the same way. My sisters were that way too. Um, we were, you know, a conservative, rural. We didn't really care much about the life of the imagination. Um, we didn't read books. We didn't have art. We didn't really, you know, participate in any of that stuff. And that was um, all the stuff that was really important to me. You know, um, I love to just um, just sit around and read books. You know, I love to look at art and I love to listen to music. Um, and that so that was just a really um, a big a big part of my life. Um, and I, I guess when I was really young, I, it was okay. You know, when you're little, when kids are little, um, they kind of fit in together. They don't really care about a lot of differences. And then, so when I found out I was a cowbird was when I hit puberty and everybody else did too. And that's like the great time when the sorting begins, right? Um, you begin to discover that there's differences between you and those differences are, um, are really pretty meaningful. And in the community that I grew up in, you know, books and things like that were important. What was important was football. Um, for those of you Irish people, it involves an oblong ball um, and you put on helmets and you run around. It's not like rugby where you have to be really crazy to run around with the oblong ball because you don't have a helmet. Um, anyway, and that was, that was what was important in my community was, you know, being a tough guy, being a football player and killing a deer, you know, you had to be a deer hunter where I grew up, everyone hunted. Um, and those were kind of the, you know, the, the two things that really set you apart as a guy or as a young man. And, um, I wasn't any of those things. I was like scrawny and nerdy and shy and bookish. Um, and I didn't, you know, so I was, I was out of that whole thing. Um, I was a boy scout, which I, I loved and I learned a lot of really cool things, but you know, at the time, if you had been where I lived, if you ever wanted to screw over your social life, 
just like be, be a boy scout and you would be out the band. Um, anyway. Um, and you know, I, I wanted to be a part of what the other kids were, were up to, but I just wasn't, I just didn't, you know, fit. Um, I was in love with this girl named Brenda Tyler. Oh my God. She had big blue eyes and she had chiclet teeth, like chiclets, you know, her front teeth, not the little tiny chiclets that would make her look really weird, but the big, nice chiclets and curly brown hair. I was so in love with her. And I just, um, I didn't dare to tell her, you know, I thought she would just laugh at me. Um, and, you know, by the time I was, I reached like middle school, um, I just, I just wasn't part of shit. I, I got bullied a lot. I just started blowing off school. You know, I would just say, fuck it. I'm not going to go, you know, I'll just fake sick, stay home, whatever, rather than deal with, you know, going to school and having people give me shit. I'll just, um, you know, I'll just stick around. And I didn't feel like I could confide any of this shit to my parents. Like my mom was really, um, really nice, really nice, sweet person. And um, I loved her very much. She was a nurse. Um, and in this little town, she was the nurse for the whole community, kind of. Our, our phone would ring all hours, you know, day or night. Somebody's sick, somebody's hurt. And my mom would be on the phone, you know, giving, giving advice or telling people how to take care of their sick kid or whatever. And she was just a great lady. Um, but my dad was kind of the opposite of me. He was, he was, um, he, he, you know, he was, went to the eighth grade and he wasn't interested in, you know, books or anything. He worked in a factory and he was a, he drank, you know, he drank a lot every day he went to work. And as soon as he got off, he went straight to the bar and he would drink, you know, all afternoon and come home at, at dinner time. And he could just be a totally um, brutal bastard. And he would slap us around and, you know, all that kind of thing. I remember once he was beating my sister with a belt so bad, you know, and we, we had guns in the house, you know, cause we all hunted. And I said, if you don't fucking stop beating her up right now, I'm going for the gun, you know? And, and I'm glad he stopped because I think I probably would have done it. Um, and so my parents couldn't be like a lot of help and support to me in that in that time. Um, and I just wanted to read you one more little thing about cowbirds. This is what it says cowbirds and their parents. Cowbirds have to figure out who they are without their biological parents. The shocking thing is that somehow most of them do. Um, like human teenagers, young cowbirds sneak out at night. Though unlike human teenagers, these chicks evening rendezvous seem to be with members of their own family. And so, I mean, what I really think I had to do was, was just find my, my family. Cause I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged to my own and, um, and I needed to find one. And when I was about, you know, 15 or 16, the way I found that family was that I discovered drinking. Um, there was a little game room in town you know, and I would go there sometimes and play foosball or pinball. And, and um, we lived in Pennsylvania. The drinking age was 21 in Pennsylvania, but we were three miles from the New York border and the drinking age there was 18. So you can guess where anybody who had a car went, you know, every Friday night and all the liquor stores and the bars on the border, they did a, a boom in business with all the kids. We all had 
you know, shitty fake IDs, but, and they all knew they were fake. They didn't care. You know, they just wanted our money and we'd head over there. And so the first time I ever went, well, I was hanging out at the game room and some guys and, you know, we're like, we're going to get beer. And I just jumped in and said, I want to go, you know, and we went and I can remember I, I bought a little eight pack, little seven ounce, eight bottles. It, it was called tiger's head ale. And I, I just bought it. Everyone else drank, you know, Budweiser, but I had, you know, I was different. I liked that tiger's head ale because it was exotic. It had a tiger on it, you know, and we got back and we went out in the alley behind the thing. And I opened up that beer and I swallowed it down and I can still, it was, I was, you know, 16. Now I'm 60 almost. I can still remember the feeling of my whole body just melting you know, like everything that sucked, everything that, you know, all my anxiety, all my feeling like an outsider, everything, just the minute that alcohol came into my body, all of that shit just started to melt, to melt, you know, and that, and, and that was it for me. I was just like on, I was on, um, on board with it, you know, and pretty soon, um, uh, you know, my awkwardness, I, I could drink and I could have a conversation with somebody. I could drink, I could talk to a girl, I could drink, I could tell somebody to fuck off if they were being mean to me, you know, um, all that, all that shit was possible for me. Um, and, that, and, and, and I also um, discovered a family because the minute I started to drink, I was in with everybody else who did too. Um, my buddies and I, we had a, we had a group called the, we were called the quartz crew quartz, like quartz of beer, because we did the math and we discovered that was the cheapest way to buy beer is if you bought a case of 12 quarts of it, you know, so we would pool up all our money and we'd drive to New York state and, and we'd buy, you know, a case of quartz of beer and then we just get puke and smashed, you know, and that, you know, could the first test was could you guzzle a whole quart you know without stopping tip up a whole quart and just drink it you know and without puking all over the ground and whether you did or you didn't it didn't really matter because um and we were out you know we were out doing small you know crime vandalism and you know raising hell all over the place driving drunk all over and that was my you know that was my life then i would I was, I felt like I had, you know, friends. I did. Of course, one of the reasons I had friends is because I also had a job and they didn't. So I had the money to buy the beer. Um, so I was kind of popular for that reason. Um, but, you know, it was like my first real identity where I felt like, wow, I'm cool. I'm in, you know, I'm proud of something. Um, you know, I can, I can fucking party, you know, and I got that reputation of someone who could do that. And it was really like, as much as the beer, it was intoxicating to me, you know, that like I had a reputation now, you know, I had a reputation as some, as the guy who could, you know, stay up all night and drink. Um, and it was really, it was really important to me. It became my identity. And, um, you know, and then I was really, I was a smart kid. I got good grades all the time. And and I didn't really have any idea why I just knew you were supposed to go to college. So I enrolled in college and I went off and there I became a cowbird again because I was a hick from the country. All the kids in school were like, 
you know, they were worldly people. They, they knew about, you know, going to Europe and traveling and eating fancy food and all that. And, but then again, I found those, um, you know, those same people, they liked to party as, as much as I did. Um, and college for me was skipping class, drinking, getting fucked up all the time, skipping class. I started smoking weed. My roommates turned me on to smoking weed, which I'd never done when I was young. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, I gained a reputation there too, you know, for someone who could, who could really, um, really party. And also I, I was studying something I wasn't good at. I was just wanted to be a biologist because I loved, you know, animals, I guess, like cowbirds or birds and other animals. And I hunted and I fished and, but I couldn't do the science part. I just hated it. Um, and so I was pretty, you know, college for me, was just a big, long party. Um, I met this girl that I liked, you know, and I, I, um, met her at a bar one night and I, you know, I thought, Oh, this is my big, big chance. But the problem was that I, I got too drunk before I showed up and I, you know, the first drink I took sitting across the table from her put me over the top and I threw up all over the table. Um, and that was kind of the end of that girl. Um, she was out and I was out. Um, and then I did find a girlfriend and she was worse than me. Um, she was, she was drunk. She was high. We had, we had, you know, our relationship was just fights and awfulness. Um, and um, when I was a senior, I lost, uh, I ran out of money. I didn't have any money to pay my tuition. I had to go get a job and I couldn't find a job. And I went to the library and I started to just read, just sit in the library and read, which I hadn't done for some time since I was a kid. And then I started to write. Um, and it was like I discovered something magic. Um, I started making up stories. I started telling stories just on the paper and a little typewriter in my room at my apartment. Um, and in that time I was off, I decided, fuck science. I'm going to, I'm going to be a writer now. And I, I changed my major and it was like a whole new world opened up for me. Um, I loved it. I went back to school and I studied literature and I studied writing and I got straight A's. I'd always got, I got terrible grades in college before that. Um, and I, I found that I was good at something. My teacher said, you know, you've got some talent. And that was kind of the beginning of sobriety for me. Um, although I did, I, I shouldn't say sobriety, but the beginning of a change in my life, because I certainly wasn't sober. I was still, you know, drunk and high all the time, but I was just getting my homework done. Um, after that, um, I got out of college and I moved to Boston to a city that I really loved. And, and, um, I found weirdos like me <laughs> and it was awesome. I, I fell in with people, um, who were different, you know, who were different, who I'd never met people like that before they played music and they wrote poetry and they painted and they sculpted and they, you know, and, um, they, I, I, I just never, I thought, you know, uh, musicians were, you know, really rich guys who you'd, you know, you'd never get to know. And artists were famous people and writers were guys that, you know, drove a Mercedes and drank single malt scotch and lived in, you know, New York city. And I never realized that there were actually ordinary people who 
were writers, you know, who were artists, who were musicians. And I started hanging out with these people and it was like, oh my God, you know, these must've been the friggin' uh, kind of people who put their egg, my egg in my, my parents' nest and like left me there. They're like, those are the birds I came from, you know? Um, and I started, I started realizing that, um, yeah, there was this whole other world for me. Um, but if you read my diaries and I, I kind of, I, this is the only time I kept a diary was then during that time I lived in Boston and in all of the and huge numbers of the entry were like this. All you do is take drugs. You're a fucking loser. You're a drunk. You're never going to be a writer. You know, what the fuck is wrong with you? Get your shit together. Um, you know, you're just a fucking idiot. Um, and like, I guess I, I still hadn't been able, you know, to, to love myself, you know, I hadn't been able to like think that I had, um, you know, value as a person. Um, and then, and I still, you know, I still hung out. My best, one of my best friends was a drug dealer. Of course he was my best friend because I also had money and he sold drugs and I was willing to buy them. Um, so, you know, those were the people I hung out with, the people who drank, the people who did drugs. And I, um, at one point I was living in an apartment and I needed a roommate and um, this really kind of oddball guy came in off the street one night or called me and said, Hey, I, I, I'm interested in the room. And he came over and he looked around and he said, okay, I'll take it. I said, wait a minute. I, I didn't even, I don't even know who you are. He goes, well, you're advertising a room, right? Like, well, I want it. I mean, I'm a good guy, whatever. And so I said, okay, you know, come and live here. And um, he turned out to be a lifelong friend. He was um, not only was he sober, he'd never really had a drink in his life. He not only did he not do drugs, he'd never really tried a drug in his life. Um, and I had worked all these dead end jobs. You know, you, it's not like you're going to get, um, you know, a good, decent job when you're half wasted all the time. I, the first job I got in Boston was as a substitute teacher. And the first day I walked in, the first class I taught, there were three kids in the class that I'd bought a bag of weed off of and gotten high with like a week before. So um, that's the kind of situation I was in. Um, but this guy came in, he said, I, I work for this publishing company downtown and, you know, you want to be a writer, I'll, I'll get you a job. We need, we need a photo researcher. And I said, what, what's a photo researcher? He said, you know, it's a guy that finds all the photos that are that, that they put in a, you know, they were for textbooks for kids, you know, social studies and whatever. We need someone to find all those photos we put in there. And, you know, we need you to do that. I said, well, I've never done. They said, don't worry, I'll get you the job. So I went in and that was my in. I started working in publishing. Um, I became an editorial assistant. And, you know, I kept saying, but I want to be an editor. I want to be an editor. Um Oddly enough, I, uh, the first real writing job I got was I, there was a, there was a, a magazine called The Local. And at the time, there were tons of Irish people coming into Boston, like just a wave of, of young Irish people just invaded the city. This was in the 90s. They were everywhere. They were opening pubs and Irish music was everywhere. And this 
woman at the company I worked for started a magazine called The Local, and it was all about Irish music. And and um, she's like, you want to write for the magazine? I said, sure. And so I got um, started writing stuff about these Irish bands. I still remember one was called The Stunning. I don't know if if you guys have ever heard of that um, band, but they were they were ama- an amazing rock rock outfit, like a pop rock band from Ireland. And they would come over. Um, uh, I hung out with with um, some of the guys from Silly Wizard. I don't. I, I think they they're maybe Scots, but um, they were a big Celtic band at the time. Um, and then I got the attention with that of people in the publishing company, and they decided to make me, um, you know, and and uh, an editor. Um, at the time, still, I was hanging out with a really heavy party crew, even at this job, you know, that we'd go out every Thursday night, our paychecks and just drink them, you know, um, come home in a cab blacked out three o'clock in the morning, settle the bar bill the next morning, everybody be sending around emails like, ah, you stiffed me, where's your money? Um, but I, I, you know, I became an editor and I was terrible at it. I was awful. I thought I was this big shit writer. And um, because I've been writing for, you know, this magazine and and there were these wonderful older women who were all the the editors there and they took me under their wing and they probably should have fired me because I really didn't know what I was doing. But these people saw something in me and 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 they, you know, they taught me they were like, this is why, you know, this is why your writing is not working. This is what's wrong with it. This is how you fix it. And they were just incredibly patient with me. Um, and I started um, I started doing it right, you know, and I started feeling good about it. I started making a real pay- paycheck and I started feeling like, you know, hey, I've got I've got some talent now, some real talent, real talent in the world people will pay um, money for. Um I went off to graduate school and I studied fiction writing and, and I was really good at that. Um, and I just loved it. And those were really my people. We would do a, um, a 10 day residency where we'd go to the school and live there for 10 days. And then we'd go back and do all our homework and mail it into our advisors for the net, for the whole semester. And they'd mail us comments and whatever. And I never wanted to go home at the end of those 10 days. I mean, I was, and by then I was married, um, but I didn't want to go home back to my wife. I didn't have any interest in that. I wanted to be with these writers because they were my people. They were brilliant. They were funny. They were, you know, creative. They were crazy. And they all, we all felt the same way about each other. We just loved each other. We were a a real um, family and we, and I still, you know, I still have lifelong um, uh, friendships from those times. Um, and I, I, but I still, I was at the whole time I was at grad school, I was a heavy, heavy blackout, um, blackout drinker. And I never was a daily drinker. You know, I never was the guy who had to, you know, would get up in the morning, say, I got to have a drink. You know, I never drank on a work, a work day during the day, but I was that guy who, um, I couldn't have one beer or one shot. Um, I had to have all of them, you know, so it was like, open the bottle, 
and either all the alcohol is gone or you're unconscious. That was the only two um, options for me anytime I drank. And since I had money, it was usually the unconscious, um, the unconscious part. So just innumerable, you know, blackout nights were kind of the story of my life even then. Um, and I don't know why I got married when I did, but I did. Um, I met this woman and I thought I loved her. I don't know if I did in retrospect, but we were married for about four years. And she said, you know, we got to have a baby or I'm out of here. Um, so I thought about it and I said, all right, we'll have, let's have a, let's have a child. And um, we went, when my wife was a few months pregnant, we went down to visit one, this, I was out of grad school by this time. And we went down to visit a friend of mine in Tucson, Arizona, uh, really probably my, one of my best friends from grad school and his wife, and she was pregnant too. Um, and I just started we were down there for four or five days and I just started thinking of all that um, everything you know I was going to be a dad um, I was a drinker my drinking was a problem um, and I really started thinking about my own dad um, and how he behaved when I was a kid and how he um, how he really terrorized our family in a lot of ways he terrorized my mom um, he spent all the money, you know, that we could have had for other things on drinking. Um, he terrorized us kids and, you know, beat us up and slapped us around and, and, and he terrorized himself. You know, he, he really ruined a lot of his life um, because of drinking. And I thought, holy shit, you know, now I'm, I'm going to be a dad. Um, and we're out hiking in the hills, you know, in Arizona and we're, it's beautiful and we're going down to Mexico and, you know, it's beautiful down there. And I'm just thinking, and, um, and I just made a decision. My decision was this, that no matter what else did or didn't happen, um, I never wanted my, my child to see me the way I had seen my dad. Um, I felt like that would be an unforgivable thing to do to a child. Um, and I thought about that. Well, then what do I do? You know, <laughs> what do I do if I, if I, um, if I never want my child to see me like my dad? I mean, I know when I open up a, a bottle of beer or, or take one drink, you know, um, I'm going to take a hundred if I can. And I'm, and I, and I also could be a total fucking bastard when I was drunk unpredictable, crazy. I mean, I was also the life of the, I was a lot of the time I was the life of the party, you know, and I'm sure I don't, I'm sure probably none of you have ever been the life of the party. Um, but, uh, yeah, I see some smiles. Um, you know, I could really be the life of the party. I could be entertaining and funny and all that, but I could also be really nasty and mean and just a fucker. Um, and it seemed like I was more often a fucker to those, uh, people who were closest to me. You know, and I don't know why that seems to be the case. My dad was the same way. Everybody in town thought he was the greatest guy. You know, they literally, they, they had it after a while, they had a town holiday after him. Um, on February 2nd, Groundhog Day, they called it, his name was Earl. They called it Eldred Earl Day. And they had a big groundhogs thing they put in the bar. And, and one time they brought a, a donkey into the bar and people rode it around and crazy shit. But because he was such a great guy. No one ever heard him say 
anything bad or be anything but the life of the party, but then home, he could, he could just be a bastard. And I saw that in myself too. And so I realized that the only choice that I really had was to um, repeat my dad's mistake for my own children, or I had to quit. And so I decided on that trip that I was going to quit. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, my friends and I, when we went down to Mexico, you, you could buy really good tequila, really cheap. Um, and my friend was kind of a tequila connoisseur and he made the best margaritas on earth. And so we were at the house. It was our last day there. And, um, I said, his name was, I call him Poe. His name's John, but his nickname is Poe. I said, Poe, will you make me a margarita? And he made me the most perfect fucking margarita on the face of the earth. Frosty glass, you know, nice and perfect, salt on the rim, everything. And I drank that um, margarita and I was like, wow, that was really good. And that was the last drink I took. Um, and that was 25 years ago, April 16th of this year. Um, thank you. And um, I raised, um, you know, I've raised a daughter now. She's 20, 25. She's had some problems of her own. Um, I later had a nasty divorce, which caused some trouble for her. And she had some substance issues of her own. She is now sober two years um, and a great kid, really, really killing it. Um, and I have, you know, my people here. I live in Vermont. I have a million uh, really good friends. A lot of them friends through doing writers for recovery for the last six years and a lot of them from outside of that. Um, and I, I'm still a cowbird though. I, I still feel really awkward in a lot of um, situations and, but I accept it. I accept that some places, you know, I just don't, feel like I fit in. Um, and that's okay with me. And I've got the people who want to be my friends and the people who don't want to be my friends and the people who don't want to be my friend. Well, that's okay with me. You know, they probably got their own friends somewhere. Um, and that's okay. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to fit in, um, with anyone, but the, but the people I love and care about, and, and I've got enough of those, um, that it really matters you know, to me and I, and I have a good life and I thank, you know, none of it. I realize that none of where I'm at right now would be possible um, without my sobriety. And I really am so fucking grateful for that. I can't even tell you. Um, I never miss it. I never miss it. My, my partner, you know, will have an occasional glass of wine. She's not really a drinker. Um, but she might, and I don't, I don't have, you know, that's okay by me. I, I can go, I love music. I can go out to a bar and see a band. My friends can drink. I just, it's so um, just, you know, unwantable to me. It's, it's just, um, I do have a problem if I'm around people when they get really drunk. I just, I just, and I, when that happens, when, they, when people start to get too out there, I just quietly excuse myself. Um, and I leave because I know it's not psychologically good for me to, to be in that um, kind of situation. And um, so I realized I'm still a cowbird after all these years. Um, and I realized that my tribe is 
a bunch of cowbirds too, a lot of them. And I'm sure many of you um, are cowbirds. So if you've never recognized that before, get your feathers on um, and, join the, and join the group. And it's a happy nest we have here of sober cowbirds. You're welcome to join it. Or if you're not, that's totally cool. If you're a cardinal or a turkey or a blue whale or whatever you are, you can be that. Um, so that's about um, all I have to say about that. I hope I didn't bore you all to death. But I did just want to do one thing, um, if, if y'all don't mind, before um, before I go, I've, I've been, just for this, I've been working on the uh, call of the cowbird. Um, I've been practicing. So I just wanted to um, just give a little cowbird call. So hold on, I just got to get my hands ready here. Um, and I'm from Vermont, so it's pretty wild area. We have a lot of cowbirds. Are you ready? Everybody, I'll do it on three. One, two, three. Moo. Oh, all right. I'm working on it. What the fuck? It's not perfect, um, but I'll get it sometime. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to my story. And it's been really nice to spend time with you. Um, thanks. So I guess we open the floor to whatever anyone has to say. <laughs>